Welcome to the Polari Podcast with me, Paul Burston. And me, Sophia Blackwell. Tonight we're going to be revisiting a couple of shows that Paul broadcast online. Paul, how is the Polari Online going? Polari Online has been building month on month. I wasn't sure at the beginning how, how that would work. And what I found is there's a lot of people that are, that are sort of repeat, you know, they, they come back each time. Um, they booked for one and then they get the invitation for the next one. And also different authors and different themed events bring different people in as well. So I've noticed that the, the geographic split of people is changing. So, you know, obviously when one's touring physically, there's only a certain catchment area you, you're going to reach, whereas digitally you can reach people pretty much anywhere where the time zone works. And we've had people from, you know, all over the UK and beyond to tuning in on Zoom. So it's been really exciting for me as a, as a producer because you can think a bit more outside the box and you can think more about a wider reach and a different audience, you know. And, you know, part of keeping an event on its toes is, is developing new audiences. I think, I think in some way that also kind of feeds into the programming as well because the relationship between the audience and the performer, inverted commas, um, is constantly developing. It it feel it feels very much like a community thing, and and that, for me that was always a key part of what Polari has been about. Right, well, I'm very glad that you've managed to take some of that community feel and preserve and even develop it online. And I love seeing those positive comments too, because it's absolutely what you deserve after having built built this up in in our new world. So on this episode of the Polari podcast, we're going to be listening to interviews and some readings from four authors who are Stephen Appleby, graphic novelist and uh, cartoonist for The Guardian, uh, Niven Govenden, Stella Duffy and Alex Reeve. Stella's Lullaby Beach and Niven's Diary of a Film came out within a couple of weeks of each other, so it seemed natural to put them on together. I didn't realise at the time, although I know them both individually, I didn't realise at the time quite how much of a bond they had. I, Niven, is a huge fan of Stella and Stella really admires Niven. So it was a bit of a love fest and it went really well because there were lots of shared experiences and, and shared attitudes as writers. I mean, the thing I found interesting, I'm writing genre fiction, I write crime fiction. So um, there's certain expectations when, you, when you're a genre fiction writer. Um, Niven's writing literary fiction, Stella writes literary fiction, has written crime fiction, she writes a whole variety of different things. And what, what was interesting to me was that they both had the same instinct, which is that they both basically follow their nose and they don't really have a kind of career plan in terms of what they're going to write next, in terms of how it's going to build on the last thing they did or not. They're they, they very much, whatever story comes to them, that's the story that they write and the way they write it is however, however it presents itself. Now, Stella's obviously written uh, over 15 books, all of which are different from each other. And recently I was speaking to Niven and I said to him, you know, I never know what to expect from you because he's written about, you know, American artists. He's written about an interracial couple in the UK. And his most recent book before this was about drag mothers on the um, Vogue ball scene in, in America. And now he's writing about a middle-aged European auteur in Italy who's awaiting the 
premiere of his film. You know, for such a young writer, you know, still fairly early in, in his career, though he has been publishing fairly consistently for about 10 years, you know, well, I said, I never know what to expect from you. And he said, oh, great. There was one point where we talked about representation and the burden of representation and never mind being a queer writer, but if you're a queer writer from an ethnic minority as well, is there is there a, is there an extra burden of representation on you as as a novelist? And he said, no, not at all. I write for myself, and everyone else has to just come along with me. And I thought that was so refreshing to hear that. I'm going to start right at the beginning of the book because, like you said, my, it is immersive, and my intention was to feel that you would really be living in this world for the next three days. I flew to the Italian city of B to attend the film festival in late March. Our entry into the competition, a liberal adaptation of William Maxwell's novel, The Folded Leaf, had been officially confirmed, and I was expected to participate in three days of interviews and panels to promote the release, with a jury screening on the second evening. My co-producer Gabriella had arrived at the start of the week to prepare, also the cast, who were busy hawking other projects, about which I was both curious and jealous. It's hard to think of actors, good actors, as anything other than your own once you've worked with them. I knew they'd be expecting me to see their films while I was there, wanting their betrayals to be blessed, and I anticipated that it would hurt as much as watching them with other lovers, a feeling especially pronounced when the new film was still warm on my lips. Eight months had passed since the production had wrapped and I missed their company, particularly the two leads, Lorian and Tom, who had a youthful ease that blended seamlessly into our production family. Nothing of the film could be changed at this point, and I'd made my peace with it, absorbing the heightened pressure of meeting strict deadlines in order to screen in this competition. There were other festivals through the spring and summer, but this was the one that mattered to me, having previously brought me luck and with it a sense of calm. But for all my confidence, I arrived in the city feeling apprehensive. The trip had the air of both a working holiday and a funeral. There was excitement for the next stage in the film's journey, one in which I envisaged only good things, but also a finality, for with it my participation would cease. It was for Gabby, the actors and their publicists, to take the baton and run for the glory they dreamed of. I could return to my hometown of S, regroup and retreat into my ideas. My first impulse on arriving at the airport was to have the car take me directly to the hotel. So keen was I to see Lorraine and Tom again, to hear their voices, to feel their breath. I wanted to suffer their tender, respectful mockery, typical of young Americans who'd been brought up well, but I was also aware that this would be the last time that I would play their loving God, and I wished to delay that. They'd not yet seen the completed film, so therefore a realm existed where they could not be disappointed in me. It wasn't the first time that I explicitly sought the love of my actors. There's an almost supernatural aura of openness, risk-taking and safety present in the shooting of some films that does not exist in others. As always, we've been pressured by a tight shooting schedule and insufficient money, but the folded leaf was nourished by magic. It informed the breaking light of dawn shooting and held its power over us until the end of the day. Drunk on its potency, it interrupted my sleep for much of the principal photography, so keen was I not to lose this holy atmosphere, fearing the mist would clear on waking. I'm not a superstitious man, there's no room for the Ouija in filmmaking, but we were all touched by the same feeling and simply wished this gift to stay. It was something I hoped was honoured in the final cut, and by which Lorian's and Tom's faith in me would be justified, as mine already was with them. Oh, (laughs) I have to ask you, were there any particular directors you had in mind when you were creating this storyline? 
it's really sort of a mixture of people I've been thinking about in the kind of years previously. And also it's a reflection of, you know, I studied filmmaking at Goldsmiths at university and that was was really about being immersed in filmmaking and, and you know, watching films in cinema having the, the same impact on my writing that literature did. And so for this, I was thinking a lot about Visconti um, and especially Pasolini. I was reading a lot of Pasolini, but then also thinking of... Um, Vim Vendors had a big influence on this book and so did Fassbinder especially. I watched a lot of Fassbinder films and Cassavetti. So there's kind of a whole, there's a, there's a real mixture of people. And how about Stella's book? Because Lullaby Beach is a subtle and rewarding literary read and it's about generations of family. And one of the things that Stella and I talked about when we spoke about the book was the fact that Topics like, again, interracial marriage and bisexuality are just seen as, you know, this is something that the character does. Nobody makes a big kind of song and dance about them. What the real focus is, partly for me, is there's elements of class and the redevelopment of a society, particularly after the war. But it's strongly, for me, the themes of um, abuse, coercive control and women's reproductive rights sort of shone out of the book most strongly. Your history with Polari goes back a very long way because I think you read one of our, either our second or our third event. In and, Soho, right? Yeah, Green Carnation. Yeah, Green Carnation, yes. Gosh, that was a very long time ago. I, I am a uh, Polari stalwart. Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah. It doesn't sound very attractive, does it? <laughs> <laughs> You've written a lot, many, many books since then and worked in many different genres, including crime fiction and also literary fiction. Was this something you set out to do in your writing career or is it just a case of following your instincts? I have no ability to plan anything. I literally write the next story that's in my head. Much to the annoyance, frankly, of publishers when I've done something that has worked, because of course they want you to do something very similar again, because if it works, the market likes that. And I am, it, it's not, I'm not capable of it. I have dear friends who are capable of that, who have very successful careers, finding their own model and then revamping that with every new book and being massively brilliant at it. And people love what they do. And I am, that is beyond me. That is just, I'm just not capable of it. Um, I am capable of following my nose and my nose only ever interests me in the story that I'm interested in. Several years ago, my absolutely brilliant publicist at Barago said, you know, Stella, the, the problem with you is you have way more brand than you have sales. <laughs> and, and that's, it's true. It's my truth, right? I like loads of people think they might, well, the ones who don't think they're reading Carol Ann, obviously, but, um, you know, loads of people think they know my work or they've read me, but they haven't. And that's because I've been around for a really long time and done a lot of stuff. They like crime, so they read a couple of the crime books, or they like historicals, so they read that. But, but you know, I'm not going to please everyone every time because I do write different stuff each time. Is that partly about expectation, do you think? Is it, is it partly to do with the pressure of expectation of having to follow something up, or is it...? I don't, I don't think I've ever had the kind of success that means there's been huge expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the reason that I'm... As a performer, I'm an improviser rather than an actor, is I get really bored really fast. And I am interested in the moment and in exploring the moment. And I'm interested in the story that grabs me in that moment. And I'm, I just am not interested in doing the same thing or versions of the same thing again. Um, and it does, you know, it can be annoying for publishers because, of course, if something does well, they would love more of that. And some people, as I say, are amazing at it. 
I'm not. Can you tell us a bit about where this book came from, why you wanted to write this story? Shelley, my wife, and I have, uh, we've got a beach hut. And it's um, not in Whitstable, but it's near Whitstable. It's not Tankerton, the less shiny bit. But um, I had just had a commission to write the Nio Marsh continuation. And um, because it wasn't only for me, that was more money than I've ever had for a book. Um, So I had a chunk of money. Shelley's uncle had died and left her a chunk of money. And somebody we know was selling a beach hut. And so we bought it, you know, from her, I think within 10 minutes of her saying it was for sale. Peach huts are weird and amazing. I mean, ours is a proper old-fashioned, no electricity, no running water. You can't sleep there. It's literally a hut. They're so English. Well, they might be British. I don't know. But I know them as English. They're certainly not New Zealand. And I grew up in, in New Zealand. They get passed on from generation to generation. All of my books, the house they're set in or the flat or the village or the town or the city, the place really matters. So a lot of this book is set in and around this beach hut and then other bits in 1950s London. And I just love this idea of this tiny space being filled with emotional content from the generations that have been there. So there's that. There was also that Me Too and emotional abuse and coercive relationships and sexual abuse have... I'm 58 next week. Pretty much every woman of my generation has a story, pretty much every woman I know, my generation. And I hear it from the younger women too. Of course, we hear it from men as well. But in terms of me too, it has pretty much been about famous women and famous men. And of course, because that gets the publicity. But I really wanted to write about it in terms of ordinary people. So this is three generations of women's experience of, yeah, abusive relationships. And hopefully it's got some cheery bits in it as well. But it's definitely that. There's Kitty, who is born just at the end of the, just before the Second World War. Um, and she's 17 in 1957. So my mum was born in 1921. And my mum was 18 in 1939 and joined up. And so Kitty is sort of a bit my mum. She's a bit my aunt's. She's she had a very different life in that she stayed single and she doesn't have children and some of that's in the book. And she's a, a, this matriarch, she's this family's matriarch, and she has a some a disastrous relationship that kind of sets the tone for her life in the 1950s. And she's a take no prisoners, hard as nails, absolutely brilliant. I've got I had joy writing her. And as she the older she gets, the tougher she gets. And then there's her two great nieces, Sarah and Beth, and they're in their 30s now. And then there's Lucy, who's 17. And so it's three generations of women, and they are aunts and nieces. And I'm an aunt to 15 and a great aunt to 31. You hear a lot about fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and that this aunt and uncle place, it doesn't get ventured into a lot. And I think it's a really interesting relationship. And um, as somebody said on Goodreads, they really enjoyed the book, but they were very disappointed because there wasn't enough queer content. And I'm sorry, but (laughs) some of my books do have much more queer content. This one, they were like, where were the queer characters? There is one character who's bisexual, and I'm so proud of writing a bisexual person like it's normal, like it just happens, like we don't have to have her coming out. Um, I have done that in other books, but in this one, she's one of the leads. And it just is. And I think, and I get why people want 
the story and the plot to be about our queerness. Of course I do. And I have other books that do that. This one, our queerness is part of life rather than the story. This is when we first see Kitty as a almost 17 year old. There's the town of Westmere is a sort of made up um, South, English Kentish South Coastish town. Kitty Barker sidled into the dining room to take the breakfast orders. It was the first day of a new week and she liked to get a good look at the guests first thing. These days, she preferred to have a glance over them before they saw her. She changed a lot in the past year. She was taller for a start and her bust had filled out. She knew her figure looked good and was fine with it being noticed by the fellows she fancied. But a few of the dads this season had made a point of insisting on a cuddle or a kiss to welcome them back. It was getting embarrassing and their wives looked daggers at her too. As if it was her fault, their old man couldn't keep his eyes or his hands to himself. She stood by the sideboard, listening to the new guests, their excited exclamations filled with a week's worth of hope. Those seagulls do enough to make a racket. The music from the merry-go-round on the pier is lovely, isn't it? I was just dozing off and caught a bit of it on the wind. And they would laugh and dip a triangle of bread and marge into a runny yolk, crunch a crisp rind of bacon, pour another cup of milky tea, and plan days of pebbles and sand and candy floss slow afternoons and long nights and Kitty would wish herself anywhere but Westmere preferably London uptown downtown she knew all about Soho frothy coffee and cocktails with sweet cherries smart lads on scooters with girls who jumped on the back and rode off with good-looking boys hair flying out behind cheek nestled into the back of his neck aftershave and brill cream and change Danny Nelson was change on a stick he was a bit flash for a start. His dad was Charlie Nelson, a builder and a big man on the council. The Nelson family business had come into its own after the war, rebuilding the damage and laying foundations for the hope they'd been promised during those long, dark years. Danny, born in 1932 and bright enough to get into the grammar, had surprised his mates when he left school at 16 and went to work for his dad. On his 21st birthday, Charlie Nelson handed him the key of the door to the works office. Danny was running two teams of men within a year and the whole of the Westmere side of the development by the time he was 24. But even that was not enough. He had bigger plans and needed extra cash for those plans, which was why he took on the Lullaby Beach job when his dad made the hush-hush deal with Mr Barker, letting the Barkers buy the land outright courtesy of a useful legal loophole and a large backhander. For the whole summer of 1956, when Pat Boone and Doris Day were vying for the attention of all clean-cut kids, Danny Nelson spent his days remodelling the old hut right at the end of the bay. Kitty was drawn by Danny's dirty blonde hair and his knowing smile. She was drawn by how good it felt to have him look at her. Kitty knew she looked good. Those annoying guest house dads made it only too obvious. She was tall, with long, shapely legs, dark hair, her eyes ringed with long lashes. Jane Russell to Marilyn Monroe. As it turned out, Danny Nelson preferred brunettes. Thank you very much, Stella. Let's go back to Niven. Can we talk a bit about representation and what that means to you as a writer? Do you feel a burden of responsibility? No, I, my responsibility is only to myself to write the story I want to write in the way that I think is the best way to write it. Um, I, I had an interesting interview earlier this week and um, someone said to me, it's really interesting. Every time I get a book from you, I never know what I'm going to get. I don't know whether the character's going to be straight or queer or what ethnicity they are or what country it's going to be in. I literally have no idea. And I'm, I, you know, I like that. Um, 
and that that's that makes me happy because I I never want to feel hemmed in. I kind of want to have a a full, you know, a full box a full box of crayons to kind of work with. You know, Stella's like my idol in that respect because you know you have to be really single minded and do the work that is really consuming you. And um, you know, props to everyone who can who can. Um, have a take a wider view of how what they write sits with everything else but I'm I, I'm actually far more willful about really wanting every, the, what I write is a reaction to the book that follows so obviously this is a completely different kind of setup to to this brutal house so I always kind of you know my instinct is always to move away from the last thing I did I'm always really interested in in creative people and what it is with serious creative people who keep needing to do work not just, you know, I've made a film once and that was enough for me. It's the people who, who are these people who want to make a film again and again and again and really throw themselves into it and need to do it the moment the last one is finished. You know, I feel a kinship with novelists who have that exact same thing. People like Stella, you know, we just get on with it and do it. And it's not because people are expecting it or people are asked, you know, any of those things is because we need to do it and... And one of the things I'm really loving about the responses to this book is a because it's about cinema and it had you know anything about cinema kind of gives you the the tendency to kind of dream and really throw yourself into it. But because of where we are and how battered we all feel, the idea that you can travel vicariously through this book to Italy and walk around a European city, you know, it's literally one of my favourite things to do. So I kind of people seem to really feel that. So I'm just going to read this. Is, this is at a dinner that they have after the after a kind of a critical screening. And it's about, it's about food. It's a bit food poorly, but it's also very much, because it's, it's written about film from a kind of a queer lens. So the director is queer, he's married with a child. And this is about his separation between his work life and actually his marriage. Okay. It was a good humoured dinner underscored by gentle drunkenness, plates of primavera greens, cuttlefish and black rice, silken ribbons of palpadelli with wild hair and kerchiefs, tarts sweetened with honey and mascarpone. Gabby and our publicist had joined us, everyone elated with the first interview where the case for the film had been made and not just accepted but applauded. The three journalists present who had seen a preview screening were agreed that this was a story which needed to be told and who were convinced beyond measure by its truth. By the fish course, we'd stop talking of the schedule entirely, marvelling instead at the work coming from the kitchen, the miraculous comfort of the black risotto, the hair which tasted of the woods, in harmony with the fungi and red wine sauce that dressed it. Lorian whistled his surprise at each plate was brought and then wolfed it down without a word. Tom was similarly speechless, his eyes taking it in before regaining himself to ask a dozen questions about each dish's origins, ingredients and preparation. He was an Epicurean in his makeup, remnants of a farm boyhood, and it was pleasing both to answer what I knew and to bow to my learned kitchen friends when I did not. My husband had found this restaurant many years before, left to his own devices at a previous festival, which I had insisted on dragging him to early in our relationship, wanting to show off, but at the same time frozen by the weight of the gesture. I deliberately kept myself busy when I didn't need to and gave him no time. Frustrated by my coldness, he considered leaving early on several occasions but never followed it through, knowing that I would thaw once I'd fully assimilated to the festival's inner rhythm and then return to him as a functioning human being. Equally, he would never make me forget how selfish and isolating I'd been. 
It was in the period long before we married when our outcome could have radically altered. If he'd left during that festival week, by his design, it would have been over. In fighting this restaurant deep in the city's working heart, in pulling me away from the festival's bubble to a place where my obsessions were unimportant, secondary to both the food and the company sitting across from me, he saved our relationship. Our foundations were created over that meal, what was acceptable and what was not, the definition of what life meant to each other, put on the spot for our interpretations of what constituted personal success and living well. He forced out of me things I typically only gave credence to on film, afraid of showing the same vulnerability that had choked previous relationships, but he was not those others, he was himself thoughtful and willing to fight. A space opened up that enabled the possibility of our marriage to exist, making the restaurant itself more than just a gastronomic home, but a place where family could be created from ruins. I'll leave it there. On listening to Paul's recordings, I was so glad that Niven had chosen to read from that sensuous Italian restaurant scene, which I absolutely love. We also ended up talking about how timely Stella's book had turned out to be in the time of COVID when we all reflect on mortality and different types of loss. It is difficult to sell books right now. You know, I am somebody who sells books at book events, sells books at festivals, sells books at gigs. I love all of those things and it is really difficult for us. So thank you, Paul, for having us. But also the reviews matter. The person saying something nice on Amazon matters. The person saying something nice on Goodreads really matters. And so this, honestly, it really does. So these connections with with readers are still the way that we can continue even in such a difficult time. You know, I spent a lot of time last year because we all thought it was going to be easier this year, thinking, thank God my book's not out till 2021 because it's so difficult. <laughs> then it just kept going on. You know, a lot of this book is quite dark. There are definitely easily readable bits in public, but a lot of it's quite dark. And this is a piece that is about darkness, but I think not too dark for a reading in mid-COVID, just at the end of winter. Um, one of my dearest friends uh, killed herself 18 months ago. And I had already written all of the suicide stuff in this book. I don't know if it's because I grew up in New Zealand, which has a really high suicide rate or whatever, but I do have quite a few dear ones who've taken their own life. And I wanted to to place this truth within a kind of place that says, if you are feeling like this and reading this book, it's not that I think you're bad and wrong to be feeling this. And it's not that I don't think you have the right to make your own choices, but probably like this character, there are people who wish you would make another one because I don't think it's up to any of us to tell people what choices they should make. I really don't. And I don't think it's up to me to tell my dear, dear friend who I'd loved since I was 12 that she should have made a different choice. I bloody wish she did. This is at Kitty's funeral. And the book, as I said, does start with Kitty's suicide. So it's not giving anything away. Beth, who's the niece, gets up to speak on behalf of the rest of the family. They had chosen not to lie. The children, there's a couple of younger children, the children knew the truth. The coroner's verdict had been in the local newspaper. Kitty would have hated any obfuscation. Beth steadied herself against the lectern and looked out at the room of upturned faces. There was Ernestine, bowed at the loss of her old friend. Etta cuddled tight between Tim and Lucy, her father watching with faith that she would hold it together. 
Sarah wondered if their choice about honesty was quite right. It was one thing to shame the devil, as Kitty liked to say, quite another to pour salt into a gaping wound. She looked to Beth, who nodded, and she took a deep breath. Just realised, I said Beth was reading it, it's Sarah. Sometimes when you're, you're naming characters, you don't know which one belongs to which until you get to the third draft. They were called different things until I got to the third draft. Anyway, she took a deep breath. We are not happy with Kitty. We are not happy with her at all. She was gratified by the little shake of the shoulders and smile she saw on Ernestine's face, by Tim's quiet laugh and Lucy's silent applause. As most of you probably know, I am not happy with you was a Kitty phrase. Kitty's love and friendship was fierce, uncompromising and very strong and her displeasure was equally ferocious. Beth and I are so grateful that we had her in our lives. When our mother died, she was the rock on which we beat out our grief. It's fair to say we were not delicate in our loss, and I think we have Kitty to thank for that. We have never been delicate girls. She let us wail and roar and rage about Mum's death, encouraged us, encouraged us to take it right to the edge, and then she told us when it was time to get on. Kitty told us to keep going to live alongside our grief, to live with it, not to deny it, and definitely not to buy into what she called the time heals everything crap, but to allow ourselves to grow while grieving. It was the best thing anyone could have done for us back then. She let us have our pain. Sarah paused and here we are, grieving, remembering that she taught us how to do it. Remembering it's okay to be angry and hurt with our grief. It's okay for grief to be noisy and loud and messy, just as there are also times when it's quiet and small. She looked down at the words on her page, what she and Beth had agreed she would say next. She took a breath and tried to speak, but nothing came. She tried again and then tears came instead, a gulping, unexpected sob. The room became painfully silent as she tried to hold in the tears and her body refused to let her and another sob opened the floodgates to heaving, shaking grief. Beth, their father and Etta almost knocked each other over as they jumped up to race to her aid. After a rush of hugs and more tears and to the palpable relief of those still sitting, Sarah picked up her page and started again. This time with her father on one side, her sister on the other, and seven-year-old Etta perched precariously, proudly, on the edge of the lectern. The thing we really want to say, shaming the devil in the way Kitty taught us, is that we're bloody annoyed with you right now, Kitty. We are not happy. You could have told us, any one of us here today, you could have asked for help. You could have let us know you had made a choice. We all know how damn stubborn you always were, how sure of your path. We might not even have tried to talk you out of it. Ernestine sucked her teeth and muttered, I would. And a dozen voices joined in with, oh yes, amen to that. Sarah and Beth laughed and their father shook his head. Yeah, perhaps we'd all have tried to, but even so, Sarah went back to her speech. The hard part now is how much we don't know. What was going on that you, of all people, chose to stop? That's the worst bit, Kitty. None of us ever wanted you to stop. It's impossible to imagine there being no you. We love you and we're really sorry that you made this choice. And even though we know it was your life and you're the one who taught me and Beth that we are in charge of our own lives and we get to make our own choices, we are not happy with you, Kitty. At the very least, we'd have liked to say goodbye in person. This way is too hard, far too hard.
So the next Polari online show that you did featured Stephen Appleby and Alex Reeve. So two quite different authors there. Yes, I, 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 Stephen I wanted to feature. Stephen was booked to appear at Polari in, in real life at South Bank last year when everything got cancelled because of COVID. So I had a waiting list of people who had been booked to be headliners because Dragman actually came out last year, last March, March 2020. Um, Alex is somebody whose career I followed closely since his first book, which was called The House on Half Moon Street. He's a crime writer. I met him at Harrogate Festival and he was writing this book, which is about to come out, um, which was about it's a historical crime novel set in Victorian England in which the protagonist happens to be a trans man. And that fascinated me. There's some similarities with Sarah Waters in the sense of sort of queering history and queering that period. And I just thought they'd be a really good pair because Alex's latest book was about to be published, The Butcher of Burner Street. Obviously, their work is very different. One's a graphic novelist and one's a crime writer, broadly speaking. But they're both writing about trans identity or they're both exploring trans identities in different ways. So I knew that there'd be enough shared conversation and there'll be enough commonalities to keep the conversation um, fluid and they were very interactive with each other Alex is a huge fan of Stevens as I I know many people are because he's been around for a while and many have grown up reading his seeing his comics in the Guardian his cartoons in the Guardian and so on so it was a very very good pairing they they, they were very different on on some levels but also there, there was enough commonality so that the conversation flowed very easily Tonight, we're exploring trans identities through various mediums with two very, very special guests. Stephen Appleby is an award-winning cartoonist and graphic novelist whose latest book is Drag Man. And our second guest, Alex Reeve, is a best-selling crime writer whose third novel is The Butcher of Burner Street, which is part of a series. Stephen, you've performed at Polari a number of times over the years. It's nice to see you again through the power of Zoom. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. I was just saying that I'm not used to doing Zoom. I've managed to spend a year almost hardly ever doing it. So, Where have you I, been? <laughs> Dragman came out just as the lockdown, well, just before the lockdown in March. How has it been for you launching a book and then all this happening? It was really great to get the book launch in just before it happened, but... But yes, I mean, I we I was already getting anxious about it when the book launch came along, and um, and I remember somebody saying, you know, we're all packed in here, and Soho is kind of like Christmas Day, you know, empty streets and stuff, and here we all are packed in Gosh Comics and and then Jerry's Club celebrating this book, and and in fact, me and my family and various friends of ours all got ill about a week later. So, oh my goodness. Um, so I don't know whether the you know we caught it at the book launch or whether we were already, you know, exposed. But um, but yeah, it was. Uh, and then what of course happened was that all all the events I was supposed to do got cancelled, and I was supposed to go to New New York because it came out in America, and I was meant to go to Germany and Holland because it came out in Holland, and you know nothing none of that happened. So it was all a bit disappointing but not as disappointing as if I'd had a stage show about to go on or something so 
Yeah. So small, yeah. you know. And you and the book, the books won a, a prize. You were telling me recently in an email. Um, well, yeah, it, it, the French edition won uh, the special jury prize at the Angoulême Comic Festival, which was which was amazing. And um, you know, it's 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 a really big graphic novel prize, which I'd never expected to come anywhere near winning. So so that was fantastic and and kind of put all the worries I had about the book you know what it's like when you do a book and you worry about it and you know I could have been better and you you know all of that and I just after winning the Angoulême Prize I thought okay I'm going to stop stop worrying (laughs) until the next time (laughs) until the next time yeah yeah. (laughs) exactly Dragman takes a familiar superhero trope which is that of a double sort of secret life and this character having these two lives and also the idea that the costume is empowering, which I think is really interesting. Um, well, yeah, basically Dragman kind of came into being uh, in 2002 as a character in my Guardian weekly strip. And it was, and and he was, he, she, I've always called Dragman he, which some people have commented on, but anyway, Dragman always seemed to me to to be able to to do more you know there, there seemed to be more to the character sort of you know I was closeted I'd been kind of dressing in women's clothes since the well I suppose the late 70s well mid 70s but, but but I was completely kind of secretive because it was one of those things that I was terribly kind of embarrassed about I you know and all of that um so it you know, the, the total secret life thing that, that was common back in the 70s, 80s. So it just struck me that at one point that that Dragman, who sort of popped into my head as a man who had superpowers when he put on women's clothes, just seemed a lovely parallel with the superhero thing who have secret identities and so on. And I thought I could do, rather than just the odd strip, I could do a whole book exploring the truth of well my trans experience and and also make it entertaining with the superhero side I mean this is the first Dragman comic strip and this was 2002 and it took me I don't know whatever 18 years or whatever it is you know 17 years to get to the point of doing a book this is one section my name's August Crimp and I like to wear women's clothes I'm on my way to the art museum Goldfish Boy sits in the window of the No Hope Cafe, looking out. I lift my hand in greeting, but he just stares. Mouth open. Over the park, a plane jettisons passengers. I watch them fall silently. It's always the ones without souls who go first. Souls are valuable, and you can get a great deal of money for your soul. When the soul was discovered, there was much excitement. We all have souls, even the wicked people. When trading in souls began, many people joined in. What use was your soul? Better to have a new car than something ancient and invisible. Only when your soul was gone, nothing made much sense anymore. When I put on women's clothes, I can fly. It just happens. When I was a teenager, I found a stocking down the back of the sofa. 
And I put it on instinctively without thinking. That was the first time I flew. Phew. So that's an extract from uh, one part of Dragman. And it's the first part I wrote because I was really struggling with, um, really struggling with finding a voice for the book. And, uh, you know, because I wanted the book to kind of reflect, you know, what it's really like, the sort of excitement of going out dressed. There's me probably about 20 years ago. And I wanted it to kind of, explore be, be sort of true about you know the experience of finding clubs you could go to safely I mean one of the things about doing a graphic novel that I discovered you know this is the first one I've sort of done was that you have to draw the whole thing to work it out you can't just write it <laughs> um and then you have to draw it again you know when you've uh when you've worked it out and I wanted it to reflect, you know, certainly my confusion about what I was, you know, was I, you know, was I a man dressing up? Should I have, been, you know, been born a girl? What, you know, all these different sort of things. And my confusion about my sexuality, you know, was I interested in guys or, you know, girls or whatever? And, uh, and I put real things from my own experience in it. Because, I mean, I actually found a stocking down the back of a sofa in the first student flat I ever lived in and I put it on and that's where that's the first time it occurred to me um that I could you know dress as a woman even though I hadn't been born one and as I started to try and work on the book I, I you know I tried all sorts of kind of tricks I suppose I went to Berlin which you know I thought um oh, if I go somewhere else I can I can maybe be inspired in a way that I'm not sitting in my studio that you can see behind me. And I made little kind of ideas about the kind of, you know, because even things like what kind of crimes would Dragman thwart? Would it be minor ones like sort of, you know, a dog soiling the pavement? Oi, use a bag, you know, or bad dress sense like in the original cartoon? Or would he save the world, you know? What should he wear? Should he look sexy? Should he be ordinary? Should he be outrageous? All these kind of questions. And I went and stayed at my cousin's house. She's got a shed in this little woods behind her house. And I could go with a flask of coffee and sit in there and think. And I had various ideas and so on, but it didn't come to life. And then I had an exhibition in Mallorca in this little gallery. And I went with a friend of mine and, um, and the exhibition was fun and you know and afterwards me and my friend stayed in a airbnb for a few nights just to kind of have a bit more holiday and she asked me how the book was going and I kind of moaned on about how I couldn't find the voice of it and so on and she kind of told me off and just said oh for goodness sake you know you're being self-indulgent just get on with it and I got really cross and I sort of walked off and I came back and apologized for walking off and all that kind of stuff and then the next morning I woke up and suddenly I had this kind of like a play and all that bit I read out to you, I just wrote it all down in my notebook. And my friend got up and I said, shush, you know, I'm finally working on it. And she went, oh, okay. <laughs> and, um, and that was the beginning of the book. And that's what my agent 
sold the book on. So I was able to come back to my studio and, you know, make all those kind of cards. I tried all those different things you read about and hear about, you know, um, you know, making diagrams of, of, of the world and the characters and, you know, little post-it notes, the arc of the story. And I would do them and then never look at them again. And I had this sort of slogan uh, stuck up on my metal pinboard thing. And this, this was said by a friend's son who was about 15 at the time. He was asked, he went to see a film and he was asked what he thought of it. And he said, well, it was ambitious, but it wasn't engaging. And I wanted Dragman to be ambitious and, uh, and sort of multi-layered, but, but also really engaging. So I started kind of making these little bits. There's a character called Dog Girl who becomes Dragman's sidekick and she has super smelling ability. But the important thing as well is that she is just herself. Dragman is part-time August Crimp and part-time Dragman with the two identities, but she's just Dog Girl always, 24-7. I slowly kind of got the book sorted out. I did a first draft and I thought, oh, brilliant, you know, I've kind of cracked it. And then I reread the first draft and it was awful. So I did a second draft and a third draft. And um, finally I did a sort of fourth draft, took on board sort of um, comments from Jonathan Cape, the publisher and my agent. And finally we sent it out to other publishers in other countries. And, and I was thinking that I was kind of there. And then the German publisher I had rejected the book. They said it wasn't what they'd expected. And I thought, oh, no, you know, because you sort of send something out and you don't get a response. I don't know if this is true for Alex and, and Paul, but you, you kind of send something out and you want to reply like the next day. But of course, that doesn't happen. And, you know, I think the German publisher took about a month to get back to me. And none of the other publishers that I potentially had got back to me at all. So I thought, I thought I haven't got it right. It's completely hopeless. And then about two weeks after the German publisher rejected it, my American publisher wrote to me saying, well, sort of saying it was a masterpiece and all of these different things. And, and I just thought, wow, well, somewhere between this, these two extremes is hopefully a book that's kind of okay. You know? so, that, so I just started doing the finished drawings. It's very gratifying to hear that graphic novelists go through so many drafts and all the agonies that other uh, novels go through. Well, you can imagine how horrendous it is when, when you realise you've gone down a tangent that's just pointless and you've done 48 pages of rough drawings and basically they need to be binned, you know. It's kind of like, oh, no. I think we'll go over and talk to Alex and we'll come back to you in a little while, Stephen. Thank you very much. Um, Alex, um, you last performed with Polari, I think, in Birmingham on tour a couple of years ago. And the new book is the third in the series. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Third in the series. Um, started with The House on Half Moon Street, then The Anarchist's Club, and now The Butcher of Burner Street. I fell in love with Leo from the, from the very first book. I just completely became besotted with Leo. Um, what inspired you to write about this character and at this point in history we should say it's, it's set in Victorian England what inspired me initially was wanting to write about identity actually in, in some ways you know 
And I love Dragman. And that was brilliant, by the way, Stephen, just to say. And uh, some of those same issues, you know, with Dog Girl and, and her identity and all of that. I, and I feel sort of it was the issues of identity, of people being able to choose their identity that really inspired me. And then on top of that, uh, friends of mine having experiences, some of which were difficult, which I felt a lot of compassion for and wanted to write about as well. So somehow those things came together in a character and I wanted to set it in the past because I wanted to set it before, partly before kind of surgery and, and you know, steroid help and things like that came in. And, and so I wanted to set it before that. And that particular period, the 1880s, really appealed to me because that was such a period of change where everyone was going through lots of change. So I wanted this character who would remain the same. He remains himself uh, throughout the whole story um and while everything is changing around him and he's he's the the trans one but everything else is changing while he stays the same and that that kind of appealed to me so that's why i picked that era the book was the first book was the richard and judy book club choice that's pretty amazingly mainstream for such a queer story were you were you surprised at that yeah i was i was absolutely staggered although i will say i didn't really know what it meant um in that you know, but the publisher rang me up and said, oh, amazing, you know, you're going to be a Richard and Judy pick. And honestly, I didn't, I was very innocent. I didn't really know that that was a big deal. And um, and then it kind of happened and, you know, and then it's in Smith's and everything and I was quite excited. But it, but it, it, I think it was other people's reaction to it that that made me feel more excited. I didn't really know what it was. It seems to me that there's something inherently political about historical fiction that features queer characters because official history basically erases them often you can you can find out about these people there are there are historical records about them it's just that they're so often ignored there are absolutely historical records of queer characters queer people at the time and 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 trans people who were clearly trans at the time i mean you know that was they 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 wanted that identity and Yet, actually, Victorian, it's not just the history of Victorian literature. There's no, I, I literally can't find any contemporaneous Victorian literature at all that includes a trans character or an overtly trans character. Uh, so for me, it was a, a part of it was just to think, I just, want to rip, I just want to put these people back into the literature. They existed. They were real at the time. They don't exist in the literature. Why don't we kind of put them back in? And, uh, and I really cared about that. That was a hugely important thing. And I, I've actually... I recently had a lovely opportunity to exchange a couple of emails um, with Sarah Waters, and she she said exactly the same thing. That was a big part of why she wrote Fingersmith and Tipping the Velvet was putting you know lesbian women back into history who had been missing up to that point. Your writing is also under the very broad umbrella of crime writing, and my my impression of of crime writing is that it's it's much more open, perhaps. Um, than other genre fiction is to queerness. And I think that's probably inherent in, cr- in crime writing in some way because people were outside the law. And, and that, that certainly gives us an opportunity, doesn't it? And I, and I think that's true. And, I, and, I, and crime writing is such an amazingly broad area. I mean, it's almost not one genre, it's a million genres all packed in with just that one theme in common. And so I think there's tremendous opportunity. And there are some brilliant writers, by the way, doing you know, some wonderful work in romance literature and all sorts of things, you know, people like Julie Cohen, who I know you've had on. Thank you very much, Alex. I think we'll go back to Stephen um, now. I wanted to ask you how personal um, is the book? You've sort of 
alluded to it already. I felt that that, that it was best for me to kind of, that, that I could make it most authentic. I wanted a, a book that was an entertainment, that, but that really showed a, a, a truth about one aspect, at least, of the trans experience. And so it was simpler, well, most accurate for me to use my own experience. I mean, I wanted to make a kind of thriller type of thing, and I love sort of Scandi noir sort of crime fiction and stuff like that. So I, I wanted a kind of darkness in the book, and and then I can't resist putting in surreal things like the, it's set in a version of London where a scientist has proved the existence of the human soul, which then becomes a kind of metaphor for being true to your soul and. So I had all these layers, but the most important one really was the trans sort of base of August Crimp's experience. I do find the whole identity thing so interesting because back in the mid-70s, I, I didn't know sort of what I was. I couldn't work it out at all. And and in a sense, I sort of, you know, I had things like pantomime dames and stuff or, or Monty Python people dressed as women, you know, just to look at and so on and so on. But... So it was it was sort of very difficult to kind of um, decide what I was, you know, and and also technically I was a transvestite, which I, is a word I believe has gone right out of fashion, but that that was a kind of medical deviation description, do you, you know what I mean? So, and I my way of dealing with it in a sense was to kind of see it as a kind of art, arty surreal thing, and I came to kind of see my transness as a kind of blessing where I could sort of have fun with it really and kind of in a in a sort of surreal sense and I put it into my work quite a lot. When I was a tiny kid, this is something from Dragman, but I remember my mum letting me do up her suspenders and it was kind of like difficult and you know in my head I just remember assuming that one day I'd have suspenders of my own to do up, you know. This is true as well. When I realised that I was a boy and wasn't going to grow up into a girl, I was, you know, fine with that. And I did boy stuff. And then there was the finding of the stocking. But I also remember sort of wishing that one day I'd sort of find I'd changed. So it was a kind of mixed thing that I didn't really understand. I want to follow up on this, on what you were just saying about sort of lack of visibility and lack of pe- people to identify yeah. with and go back to Alex because Leo is living at a time when you really would think you were the only trans person in the world and yet Leo is in- very very self-assured right from the beginning of the very first book. Partly because I took a very very deliberately very very deliberate decision to start the book well after he had sort of confirmed his own identity it doesn't deal with him transitioning or going through that decision process or anything. It, it starts well after that. So to some extent, he is used to it. So the book sort of relies on him being pretty self-assured about who he is and what he is. He's, he's very uncomfortable about other things, but I think what he is and who he is, he is completely certain of. I actually had a question for Steve. Can I ask Stephen a quick question oh. first? Are you going to follow up Dragman? Because I really, I, I, I want a sequel I, I don't know it's the answer. I, I found it really hard to work this last year. And yeah, I, I mean, I've, been, I've wondered about following it up, but in a funny sort of way, I've kind of said everything. I didn't want to lecture in the book or preach or anything like that, but I've sort of put all that stuff in the subtext mm-hmm. of it. And so if I did another book, it would be a pure entertainment, I think, or 
I haven't seen how to do another book yet. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Totally do. But I just for, as a vote of one, I'd be fine with pure entertainment <laughs> if you give us another one. It was also bloody hard work. Well, there's that. Yeah, no, I do. I, mean, I think we've all found it really hard to work over the last year, haven't we? Anyway, yeah. right, uh, a reading. So I'm going, to, I'm going to read you a bit from page 78. Uh, so we're a bit further on. Uh, Leo has gone to a, uh, a telegram office. So he steps outside and he meets someone. And I'll just read you a few pages and then um, we'll go. Mister, the boy who'd been staring was loitering next to me with his hands in his pockets as if we were two old friends deciding where to go for lunch. He had a narrow face, well-brushed hair, and his voice wasn't yet broken. I found a farthing in my pocket and handed it to him and would have been on my way, except he seemed to have something further he wished to tell me. I'm a messenger boy, he declared. You don't have a uniform. They don't have them to fit size to fit me, sir. I'm small for my age. I see. My mind was already pondering on whether Rosie would be finished at church. Her shop was on my route home and I was keen to know whether she had any of yesterday's pies left over. I know who sent that gram, the boy said. A quarter past twelve on Wednesday. I'll tell you for the right price. I was jolted back to the present, really. Who was it? He gave me a terse little smile, not unlike the telegram clerks. For the right price, I said. What's your name? Everyone calls me Runt. Children can be cruel. He acknowledged the point with an inclination of his head. Better small than dim-witted is the way I see it. I keep my eyes open and I'm here every day, rain or shine. He was tidy enough and seemed well fed, but that didn't mean he was honest. He would most likely take my money and give me the name of the last person he delivered to or one he'd made up. I didn't want to waste my time searching for an address of someone perfectly innocent or who might not even exist. What did you see? He took up a discursive posture as if about to embark on a lengthy story for which I didn't have time. A number of gentlemen tutted as they stepped around us and one had bumped him in the back of the leg with his briefcase. I was quite sure deliberately. Well, that's the question, isn't it, sir? It was the kind of thing that doesn't happen every day. So I took note. I thought to myself, Runt, you should remember that because you call yourself Runt. He shrugged. Like I said, everyone does. It's a good thing I did take note because now I have the information and you require it. A shilling seems like a fair exchange. Sixpence. I extracted two threepences from my pocket and held them in front of his face. Half now and half afterwards, if what you say is credible. I felt sorry for the lad and had no desire to torment him, but he could run off with my money as quick as blinking if he chose, and I could ill afford the loss. He pulled a face. How do I know what your credit and what you won't? It don't sound like a normal happening, which is why it's stuck out. You might think it's outlandish and refuse to, to pay, though it's the God's honest truth. That's a risk you'll have to take. So, Paul, you've had a busy couple of months with these online events, but you're already uh, prepping for the next ones and for potentially a return to IRL events uh, in May. What are you working on at the moment? What can we expect next in terms of the podcast and Polari in general? Well, we've got Polari Live online with Musa Okwonga, Elizabeth Chakrabarti and the wonderful Nikita Gill. Again, a really, really interesting lineup. Who with and there's 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 enough. They write very different books uh, in many ways, um, but there's also certain themes that they all explore. Then we have Heaven on May the nineteenth, and that's well, as far as we know, confirmed. And unless this, unless unless the plan for for the opening up changes, then it's going ahead. And for that, we have Alexis Gregory. We have uh, VG Lee, we have PJ Samuels, 
We have uh, music from Ian Elmsley and we have the wonderful Joelle Taylor, who will be um, doing performance based on her new book, which, which is not published yet, but it'll, we'll have early, early, early copies available on the night for sale. I, I wanted it to be a special one. It's the first, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the first one after this lockdown. It'll be my first Polari Live Sober, which will be interesting. <laughs> so, so I'm looking forward to it very much. And I've just finished a memoir and the last chapter of the memoir is actually set on that night. So I've kind of written it in advance of it happening and then I'll obviously have to go back and make some adjustments when it's actually happened. So it feels very personal to me. It feels like a personal triumph to me to be back at heaven after all this time. The last big event we did was at heaven. It feels, it feels very emotional.